Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Carrie Compton. Today I'm speaking with Adrian Rafel, class of 2010, who is the author of Thinking Inside the Box, Adventures with Crosswords and the Puzzling People Who Can't Live Without Them. Adrian is a poet and has also written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New Republic. Currently, she's back at Princeton teaching in the writing program. Adrian, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure. Yeah. So, wow, a book about crossword puzzling. Yeah. <laughs> I was really excited when this came across my desk as somebody who um, – it's been an upward climb for me and crossword puzzles, I have to say. For a long time, I thought I somehow wasn't for me. You mm. can't just naturally be good at them, per se. But eventually, I decided, why am I so afraid of this thing? And I'd say for like the last 10 years, I've been giving myself permission and um, sometimes cheating a lot. Cheating is perfectly <laughs> acceptable by my book. <laughs> and also, that's so wonderful. I think a lot of people have that fear, crosswords aren't for me me, they're for everybody. Of yeah. course, they're for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I really have to say, it's opened up a space in my life that I couldn't have imagined would be as rewarding as it is. So That's great. Yeah. That's what I like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me how you came to write this book. Oh, gosh, it's been a long journey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the funny thing is, I'm a lot like you. i um, am still pretty average at crosswords. Um, but I realized one place I started this um, book, although I didn't know I was starting it then, was actually at Princeton. Mm. My sophomore year, I took John McPhee's creative nonfiction seminar. Which one of the pieces he assigned for that class was to write a short set piece that you envisioned in the middle of some longer piece, but mm. write like a little short sort of a side tangent fun thing that you'd envision in the middle of a longer piece. Mm. So I wrote this short tangent about crosswords and specifically crosswords history in World War II and more specifically mm. about um school teacher in England who was creating crosswords and he created them like every day, right? And But when you create crosswords every day, it's a lot of work, right? right. So he, um, he would put the grid down in front of his students and say like, okay, help fill in the words. And so they were helping fill in the words, but it turned out there was an army base sort of next door to the school and they were picking up, the kids were picking up cool words that they had heard. Mm. And so long story short, there were code words getting embedded into the crossword yes. that this teacher didn't even know about. British intelligence officers knocked on his door one day and oh, wow. said, uh, excuse me, we think you're a traitor. And you, what are the, why are you, why do you have Overlord and Juno and Mercury in your crossword? And he's like, what? Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> so I thought this story was amazing. You know, the assignment is write the aside to the bigger story. In my case, as it turned out, that became the story. Yeah, that's great. So tell me about the history of puzzling. You, you sort of touched on it there, but um, l let's hear how this thing became such an institution in American culture. The first word cross puzzle was published on December 21st, 1913. This um, editor at the New York World named Arthur Wynn realized, hey, uh, I need to fill blank space on my fun page of mm. the newspaper, and I'm in a jam. I've got a bunch of games in there, but what am I going to do? And printing technology had gotten better about printing blank grids at that point, which was, like, fairly recent. And he liked word games and word puzzles. He'd seen word puzzles with 
grids that you had to fill in before. And he was like, oh, cool. I can print a grid, a blank grid. That'll fill up a lot of space. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I can um, print clues with it. Even more space. Great. Cool. And I can call it Fun's Word Cross Puzzle. And that'll be the centerpiece of my Christmas edition. Okay. And he printed this and people loved it. Mm. And he thought it was going to be a one-off thing. It quickly became very regular. His version of the puzzle, it looks like a diamond instead of a square. So it's sort of like tilted. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then also his version of the puzzle, I hate to say it, it's not a very good puzzle (laughs) by our standards. But what I mean by that is... The same word is clued. Dove appears twice in it. It's kind of all over the place. Some of the clues are super hard, like fiber of the gomuti palm. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) No one knows. Not a thing. He just leaded the letters in there. And then some of them are like dove, bird. Okay. Yeah. Um, So it's totally erratic. And Arthur Wynn, you know, he... Liked his puzzle, but people, like, got really into the crossword puzzle. He got really sick of it. He was like, this is a lot of work. (laughs) I I can't, like, focus on editing this thing. And he palms the puzzle off eventually to a young woman who had just started working at the New York World who was a secretary there named Margaret Ferrer. Margaret Ferrer. So that's an important name in crossword history. Mm -hmm. She was sort of really annoyed that he palmed this off on her. Mm. It's like, okay. Well, you know, a man palming off the hard job to a woman. Right. And also, like, I don't want to do this as my career. I want to be a journalist. That's why I came here. But then she eventually, like, through sort of pressure and then kind of like all of us, she started doing the crossword and got into it and was like, hey, I can make this way better. So Margaret Ferrer started instituting rules to make the puzzle more interesting and clearer and cleaner and just a better solve for people a better game. She's like, okay, every word has to be crossed with another word. It has to be perfectly symmetrical. Clues have to be something you don't mind finding at the Sunday breakfast table. Right. Also, she started instituting standardization with cluing styles, too. So Margaret Farrar turns this from sort of the Wild West of puzzling into a more institutional game, which um, I think just makes it much more consistent. And And Margaret Margaret Fair, the name is super important because um, not only is she the wife of Fair of Fair Strauss and Giroux, the publishing company, but she's um, the first crossword editor of the New York Times. Right. And so we haven't even gotten to the point in history here <laughs> yeah. where the Times has the puzzle because the Times finds it to be rather silly, right? The Times says, hey, we don't need a game to lure our readers in. They publish, well, first they publish editorials saying, oh, this is a fad. Nobody cares about it. But finally, by 1941, they're the only major metropolitan daily in the United States without a crossword puzzle. And on December 7th, 1941, the world changes. (laughs) December 18th, 1941, a senior editor turns to the publisher and says, hey, there's going to be blackouts. There's going to be the world is crazy. 
and the news is bleak and we need something in our paper that's not just a terrible headline. Mm-hmm. Turns out the publisher really liked Crossword Puzzles and he'd been sort of surreptitiously doing them on the side oh, in a rival funny. paper. So he was like, uh, twist my arm. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so in February of 1942, the New York Times starts publishing a puzzle, but they make a big to-do about like, okay, we're going to be a really good puzzle. If we're going to publish a Crossword Puzzle, we're going to be the best Crossword Puzzle in America. So they hire Margaret Farrer to edit their puzzle and they institute her rules and standards and the New York Times says okay well we caved but we're standing strong and we're going to be the best puzzle and very quickly thereafter a lot of crossword heads debate what is the best puzzle Mm. you know there's lots of luckily the landscape is such that now there's it's really rich there's lots of great puzzles out there but I think um, throughout the Certainly the second half of the 20th century into the 21st now, the New York Times is the kind of gold standard of what is an American crossword puzzle. And there were very few puzzle editors Um, between Margaret Ferrer and Will Schwartz. It's amazing to me. Yeah, there's been so few. There's like Margaret Ferrer and Will Wang for a little bit, and then Eugene Maleska, and then Will Schwartz, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about the difference between the old and the new school of thought about how a crossword was constructed, because I'm sure there's people who have been doing the crossword long enough to sort of feel that atmospheric shift, but whether or not they've actually sat down and thought about it is another thing. That's a great question. So in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the New York Times crossword puzzle, and I think most crossword puzzles in general, were what I call old school (laughs) in the sense that the clues were pretty restricted to what you might learn in a certain Ivy League (laughs) educated environment. And Eugene Maleska, who you know, was a great crossword editor in many ways. He was very talented and skilled at making crosswords, but he had a very clear point of view about, okay, I want this crossword to be evergreen. I want you to pick it up, you know, 40, 50 years from now and be able to solve it. I don't want anything in the puzzle that's going to not stand the test of time. Mm. So in his view, that meant no brand names. That Mm. meant nothing extremely contemporary in pop culture, or in politics or anything, you know, that meant Mm -hmm. really limiting the scope of what goes in a puzzle to the kinds of things that were much more, I guess, classic, for lack of a better word. That has lots of problems that you can, uh, the red flags just pop up all the time, you know, what cultures aren't being represented in the crossword. So the crossword represented a very small sliver of culture at that point. One of the clearest examples of this is the word Oreo. It's like O-R-E-O. I loved this anecdote in the book. Yeah. <laughs> like O-R-E-O is just a fabulous crossword word. Yes. Crosswords sort of live and die by four-letter words, mm-hmm. too, because you just need them to fill out a grid. They're great. Oreo is fantastic. It's, it's like so vowel-rich. You, yeah, need, exactly. you need them. So problem is Oreo is a brand name. What do you do? Mm. Maleska's solution is to clue it as – Mountain colon prefix or like mountain combining form. I didn't know this. Apparently, Oreo, the prefix has to do with mountain. <laughs> cool. Great. Okay. <laughs> um, it kind of becomes an in-joke. 
And that, I think that's one of the intimidation factors that the crossword right. has picked up as a stigma of like, okay, you know, this puzzle is not for me. It says mountain prefix. I don't know what that is. It's keeping me out, mm-hmm. right? So when Will Shorts takes over as New York Times puzzle editor in 1993, he shakes things up and he says, you know, look, Oreo is a cookie. <laughs> it's not a mountain <laughs> colon prefix. Like, let's call a spade a spade and yeah. move forward. And so this is great because this ushers in not only an era of brand names in the puzzle, but more importantly, it ushers in brand new elements of culture that just hadn't been seen there before, mm-hmm. you know. And nowadays, the uh, answer like R-A-E is much more likely to be clued as like Issa Rae. Um, exactly. The puzzle has become and is becoming just much more diverse, much more inclusive. It's also it's responding to the times more quickly. It's responding to news cycles. And I think that is not a bad thing at all. I think it's a great thing. I think the crossword is a space that's an escape, but it also it's a better escape when it's continuously adapting to what's going on. The more pieces of culture the crossword can pick up and draw in and use for its benefit, just the better it's going to be. It's just when you have more stuff the crossword is drawing on, more words and phrases and interesting pieces of language in your word list, Mm -hmm. that just makes for a richer database, which makes for a better puzzle. Yeah. And more constructors, um, more constructors being drawn to construct and more people being drawn to solve. Well, that leads into my next question. Let's talk about the constructors. Yeah. Who are they? And I want to hear about your foray into Will Schwartz's fortress in <gasps> New York. Yeah. So Will Schwartz edits the puzzle from – edits the New York Times puzzle from his house in Pleasantville, New York, which he – is an amazing kind of puzzle palace. He has all this, um, <laughs> these um, artifacts from puzzle life and puzzle world, you know, like um, a crossword pinball machine in the basement was my favorite thing. Yes. Um, there are so many great things. Um, and he has a library of just all the dictionaries and encyclopedias you could ever wow. imagine. When constructors submit puzzles to Will Shorts, they mail them to – well, they mail them to the New York Times, and then the New York Times kind of trucks them up to Pleasantville. Mm. So his dining room is just totally given over to thousands of, you know, pieces of paper with the crossword – with crosswords on them. So these are just submissions. Yeah. And the way it works is that – I mean, there are, there are lots of people who – not lots of people – a – merry band of people who submit pretty regularly to the New York Times, but they all submit through the exact same way. Everybody from Hmm. me working on a puzzle at my desk and knowing nothing about how to do it to someone like Eric Agard or, um, you know, Lynn Lempel, these people who construct all the time, everybody is just sending in by mail. Right. Yeah. And then what happens? Will Schwartz and his assistants, so um, right now that's Joel Faliano and Sam Mazursky, they all look at the puzzle. Hmm. So the bulk of their job is really looking at it and saying, does this theme excite me? Mm-hmm. And then what does excite mean? That's mm-hmm. a very subjective mm-hmm. question. <laughs> um, excite might mean I've never seen this kind of theme before. That would be really exciting <laughs> because right. themes get recycled all the time. Sure. Excite might mean... There aren't any super weird crosswordy words in here. Excite might be as like very tame as that. It's like, wow, they didn't have to use something like 
E N E, like east northeast, you know, <laughs> like sure. or like some sort of suffix that's really annoying. Or they might sort of say the opposite. They're like, "Wow, this has so many cool theme answers in it. Uh, we've never seen." I don't know, swipe left in a puzzle before. So, like, I'm going to, you know, ask the constructor to see if they can mess with some of the weirder or, like, less appealing fill to try to get that in. So Mm -hmm. they're looking mostly at the grid, though, because the grid is the hardest thing to construct. So in a crossword, there's two basic elements, right? There's the grid, which is the grid, and then there's the clues. Mm. So constructing a crossword grid is technically, like, the most finicky part of it because once you move one letter, you can have to change change the whole grid. Mm -hmm. They can fix the clues. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's really, one something I found really fascinating when I was researching this book is that a crossword grid, you know, a filled in grid with all the letters can become radically easier or harder depending on the clues. Right. So like you could have a grid filled in with all these words and you can clue them in really easy ways. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, what's a, clue for bacon uh fried thing fried pork at breakfast cool i know what that is or like uh brings home the blank i know what that is or like uh but then something like strips in a club question mark that's a super tricky clue because your brain goes one way and then you realize strips is not a verb it's a noun and a club is not a dance club but a club sandwich and then you're good but you know, so this is all to say that um, Will and his assistants are really looking for functional, great grids. They can end up recluing up to ninety percent of the words. Oh wow! Yeah, and that's um, something that takes a lot less time for them. And also, they want to make sure that they can then calibrate and say, "Hey, you know, the word area has been clued. We know it's going to be clued five times as zone in the next month." The constructor who submits has no mm. way of knowing that, mm-hmm. right? So they will then jump in and say, we're going to reclue area. But it is fascinating that they will, they've really strongly leaned towards, okay, is this grid working well? And then, you know, some constructors are much more interested in creating great, lively clues than others. Mm-hmm. That's, that can, so some constructors' clues barely get touched, mm. others get tinkered with. So talk about your, try at <laughs> constructing a puzzle. Yeah, so that was fascinating to me. I was on a residency a couple summers ago, and I thought, well, great, I'm writing this book. What's a great use of this residency? I thought, oh, I'll just try my hand at it. You know, like I'll get some graph paper. I ended up getting crossword software, but... <laughs> <laughs> you start with graph paper. Yeah, yeah, I was like, it'll take an afternoon. I got the graph paper. It took three days. I was like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so um, I, I quickly realized I was in way over my head. Constructing a crossword is very, very tricky, at least as an entry point. Once you sort of get into it, mm-hmm. there it can do it more easily. The problem of putting a grid together, everything is so tricky and you you get really adventurous at the beginning and you're like, I can put all of these cool words into this grid and then you realize that there are so many rules that have to go on. It's got to be symmetrical, um, which means that's sort of the trickiest one. So you put a word in a certain slot in a grid and then a word of exactly that length has to appear in the slot that's symmetrical to it, mm-hmm. right? So like that quickly dictates the size of your grid, the types of words that can go where. There's crossword construction software, which has developed over and really kind of changed the game over the past decade, just in terms of 
more and more people can um, download this software and it'll do nice things for you. Like it will create symmetry automatically in your grid rather than trying to have to count out boxes on graph paper. Yeah. <laughs> and also what a crossword software can do is you can download word lists into it so it can tell you, hey, you try to like enter these letters and then you could sort of click a button and it'll say, ah, you're never going to be able to fill in the rest of your grid because there's going to be no letter combination oh, that wow. won't work in my entire database of words. Oh, wow. So I played around with this. There's like also sites online that will tell you every single way that every New York Times crossword, like a word in a New York Times crossword has been clued over time. The archives on this stuff are amazing. Yeah. Um, so I was having a lot of fun playing with that. It can be kind of seductive and maddening to think of like, what's the cleverest crossword theme I could come up with? And then realizing, okay, I have all these clever ideas for theme answers, right? I'm going to try to make a crossword that has all of these cool themes. Uh, but then that's like, <laughs> and then if I like move one word, then my whole grid gets messed up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it took me quite a while. I got really overambitious, tried to make some sort of crazy themes, um, had to start from scratch lots of times. And then I sent my puzzle into the New York Times and I got a very kind note back from one of Will's assistants saying, well, this is a really ambitious first attempt and it's not working <laughs> at all. So there was always kind of a fraughtness around women and crosswording mm. for a long time. And you talk about this in the book that to this day, constructors tend to overwhelmingly be male. Talk about the gender disparity in crosswording. So the gender disparity is really interesting because in the very beginning of crosswording, the first, you know, the first New York Times editor, Margaret Ferrer, woman, um, but always constructors leaned more male than female. Um, while solvers, that's not the case at all. So this came to a head. Um, the Con amazing constructor Anna Schechtman um, brought this up a few years ago in an article she wrote for the American Reader. It was basically said, where are the women? <laughs> ben Tausig, who's another crossword editor, also has written extensively about this. A lot of other people have. This is just people who have been bringing it to light more recently, looking at statistics of constructors published in the New York Times and elsewhere. And there's been, um, it's sort of always been lower ratios, but then ratios that started in the 90s as sort of like three men to one woman were dropping off to like 10% women, something like that. Mm -hmm. There are theories that say, oh, well, no, you know, the same thing that's happening in other STEM fields is happening in crosswords. I mm. um, find that a little bit difficult to buy. Ben Tausig, when he wrote an article about it, his point was that crossword editors at this point are overwhelmingly male. And so even with if they weren't looking at constructors, it, there's just um, a, a totally, a totally unconscious bias towards male constructors. You know, that's one possibility. I think what is very true and is great is that this is being brought to light. More people are kind of waking up to the fact that women can and should and do create great puzzles. In fact, 
just this month in March, the New York Times for around sort of International Women's Day,、mm. they had an International Women's Week and published well, crosswords、yeah. <laughs> by female constructors. And the New York Times wasn't the only one that did this. The、um, Washington Post,、um, the the Wall Street Journal had several. Published by women, the、um, L.A. Times. There's a really great puzzle,、um, an independent crossword puzzle out there called the Incubator that that only publishes puzzles by women and strongly encourages female constructors to get their start. Right. In the book, you do a lot of ruminating about the place that puzzles take up in our life.、Mm-hmm. What do you think they do for us as humans? That's such a great question. One way I'd like to think about this is that every time I start talking about crosswords to somebody, the conversation almost immediately jumps to something in their family or、hmm. something with their close friends or something to the people who are close to them. Like, oh, you know. I don't do crosswords. My grandma does crosswords.、Mm-hmm. Or, oh yeah, like my friends and I started doing the. Sunday puzzle together in college. So that's been something that's just been true throughout the process of researching the book. Is that I bring this up with people, and it immediately launches into a discussion about family friends. So、mm-hmm. I realize, okay, the crossword, which seems like this very individual act, is tapping into something that's so social and such an anchor. Too.、Mm-hmm. The other thing that comes up frequently when I talk about crosswords with people is, oh, I did crosswords in. Stressful times or in times of great grief, the crossword is something that I built in as a ritual.、Um, I think there is something that's really、um, soothing about the fact that you know exactly what kind of frustration you're getting into with the crossword.、Mm-hmm. We're living in really uncertain times,、mm-hmm. right? More uncertain than ever, and.、Um, Everything is kind of changing and in flux, and it can be really hard to know how to react. The crossword—you know what set of emotions you're going to go through.、Mm-hmm. If you're me, you're going to go into a crossword, and you're going to say,、oh, "I don't know any of these," and you're going to say, "I know one of these. I know two of these. I know. Oh, I got that one wrong. <laughs> I know one of these. Okay, here we go." So, <laughs> but you can like. So I think it's really great because it's not really turning your brain off. It's just kind of allowing your brain and your then sort of then your body and your emotions to reset. Oh, thank you so much for joining me today, Adrian. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please go to paw.princeton.edu. Or subscribe on Apple iTunes. Till next time.